0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman.
2: Welcome to Seasons. I'm Muddy Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Depending on when you're listening to this, you're either about to eat, you've already eaten, or Thanksgiving 2020 is in the books and you're making your way through piles of leftover turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce. Well, we've got some ideas for you.
2: Coming up on the show, Alex Beggs is the Emily Post for these odd times we're living in. We'll get advice from Bon Appetit Magazine's etiquette columnist about navigating the holidays during a pandemic and beyond.
1: We'll also talk to Craig Wright of Craig's Kitchen in Vernon. This is Craig's third year serving his community Thanksgiving dinner for free.
2: And what's it like being a turkey farmer? In a few minutes, you'll hear our conversation with Rick Hermanot of Econ Hill Turkey Farm. But first, what to do with all those leftovers?
1: What do you think you have leftover the most, Monty? So like after Thanksgiving, what do you think is the m-
2: definitely turkey, the turkey, turkey and dry stuffing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is, is there anything worse than dry stuffing after the fact? Ugh, it's really rough. No. Here at my house, I fry my turkey. I think it just makes it taste so much better. But it's funny because every year someone also brings a roast turkey as well, so we end up Ooh. with two turkeys and
2: turkey two ways.
1: It, it's a lot of turkey, and you know, there's only so many turkey sandwiches you can make in your life. For me, I can eat about seven of them Thanksgiving <laughs> night, and then after that, it's usually one a day You're for done. a couple
2: of days. After one turkey sandwich, I'm done.
1: Is that it? I gotta have stuffing. I've gotta have mayo. I've gotta have black pepper. And some kind of crunchy lettuce. If you don't have that, you're not you're doing mm, it all wrong.
2: Crunchy lettuce is good, yeah.
1: You know, one of my favorite things to actually make with all these leftovers. I love to make these awesome empanadas using. Mm. It works pretty well. I mean, listen, you can do it so simply too. And you know, you think empanada, you think the dough is probably the hardest part to make, right?
2: Yes, I would think yes.
1: I like to use puff pastry dough, pre-bought from the store.
2: In a Puerto Rican household, that would never fly, but continue with your blasphemy.
1: I know, I know, but here's the thing, and like, normally I would totally agree with you, but you just got done making a massive Thanksgiving dinner, it's okay to take a shortcut.
2: All right, fine, fine, fine.
1: But what I'll do is I'll take the puff pastry dough and basically I'll roll it out so it's about 35% bigger or so, a little bit of you know AP flour down, roll it out, and then I cut it into four squares. And these empanadas almost become like a meal in themselves. You can stuff whatever you want in them. I stuff turkey. I stuff stuffing or dressing, whichever <laughs> you, wherever you come from, I guess. Green beans. If you chop the green beans up and throw them in there. The trick is when you fold them over, you want to refold them on top of themselves right. on yeah, the very yeah, yeah. end. So you kind of I fold them over like the triangle sides. You know what I'm saying? So I take one corner to the other. After I stuff it, let's put the stuff in the middle, fold it over. Oh, yeah. And then I leave about a quarter inch or so of lip I guess on the bottom of it so it, it doesn't fold perfectly over. And then I refold itself on top of that then you can take a fork and press down those edges so they look you know nice and crimped. You can trim it up a little bit with a knife or with a pizza cutter if you want as well but then you want to brush it with some egg wash take an egg just whip an egg up a little bit of milk a little bit of water in there mix it up. Mm-hmm. The key most important thing when doing these you got to put a little vent dot inside of it so mm-hmm. take a knife and put a little tiny hole on top so of it so
2: the steam can escape.
1: If you don't, trust me, it still escapes. It just escapes all over the oven. Not good times. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my go-tos.
2: What else do you do after empanadas? What else? Give me two more things you do.
1: I came up with this whole idea because where I come from down south, you know, where I grew up, we would make chicken and dumplings all the mm. time. And I said, how can I make leftovers into like a turkey stew and dumpling situation? Well, here's what I came up with. So, again, I've been cooking all day, so I'm taking shortcuts the next yeah. day. Okay, I'm sorry. You guys can judge me no, all you want. Please. <laughs> it's fine. I'll go and buy a little pack of like, you know, those little tubes of biscuit dough.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The things that pop when you hit it and you can scare your kids with it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bang them on the table. Yeah.
1: Perfect. I'll take a big pot. I will then take all the things I have. Stuffing, turkey. I try to keep cranberry sauce out of it. I've done it. It adds a little too much sweetness to it. Green beans will chop up and throw in there too. Mm -hmm. And then I take gravy and pour whatever leftover gelatinous gravy we have left. Add a little bit of water or stock to it. Mix it up so it becomes a nice, thick, hearty stew. Pour that into a casserole pan. You know, yeah, a casserole yeah, yeah. pan. Or if you have any leftover foil pans, that's what I like to use, those half foil pans during Thanksgiving time because there's less dishes. Take those biscuits that you got, those little tube of biscuits, mm-hmm. break them up and put them on top Ooh. of that stew. Brush it with melted butter. Put it in the oven. This is the best reuse of Thanksgiving Ooh. leftovers you'll ever have. It comes out one big casserole dish with there's buttery biscuits all over the top of it. That delicious mixture of all those Thanksgiving flavors. It goes so well together and having that biscuit, oh my gosh, makes me so happy.
2: I'm going to have to ask for extra leftovers from my sister just so I can make that. All right, one last thing to tell me about what you do with your leftovers.
1: Everyone makes turkey soup, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to do turkey soup. We've talked about that. We've talked about turkey sandwiches. We even talked about turkey empanadas. Let's go crazy and do something even weirder with all of this stuff. Save some of that turkey and let's make a beautiful turkey pasta dish. So what we're going to do is we're going to make essentially, I don't want to say tetrazzini or the way I normally do it is almost like a stroganoff situation. I'll use egg noodles, a little heavy cream, Parmesan cheese, bring that to a small simmer in a pan, add one egg yolk, mm-hmm. take it off the heat, add the egg yolk and mix it. in. It's a little bit more difficult, but actually the technical term that's called mayonnaise. Uh, yeah you know fancy then what I'll do is I will take a pan and get some hot water going and then boil off just some broccoli Uh, then I'll take my pasta that I cooked, those egg noodles I'll mix it in with that sauce and I'll shred up the turkey throw it in there as well toss that broccoli in there toss the whole thing in a pan and serve it right on the plate it's beautiful it's almost like a take on a stroganoff or take on a uh, alfredo sauce it's so delicious so easy the key ingredient here black pepper. Finish it with fresh cracked black pepper. It's delicious and you'll never look at turkey the same again.
2: It sounds absolutely delicious. I have a feeling I'm going to be very busy in the kitchen.
1: Hey, there's so many things you could do. You could also do taco night the next night and use turkey tacos. I mean, you got me going. I go all
2: Tacos back. for days. Turkey tacos for
1: days. Come on, days. turkey pizzas? We can make pizzas with turkey. <laughs> I, got a, I got a million of them because like I said, we always end up with two turkeys at our house.
2: Now I know why. <laughs> you need all the extra turkey for the leftovers. That's right. But, you know, during the lead-up to Thanksgiving, we thought it would be fun to talk to turkey farmer Rick Hermanant of Econ Hill Turkey Farm about life on the farm for Rick and his birds. We spoke back in October about how Rick got started in farming and how wonderfully curious and sometimes mischievous Rick's turkeys can be.
3: Well, we're located in Sterling, Connecticut. We've got 360 acres that we farm. Our primary product is turkeys, but we also raise beef, lamb, pork and hay on the acreage of our farm. And we we raise all our livestock on pasture and grass fed. So that's kind of our niche. Our turkeys this year, we have about 4,000. Wow! They do have a coop they can go in. They have pasture that they can roam on and forage. Turkeys love to forage. So they love having
2: green grass
3: and bugs to chase and whatnot.
2: So they're not just cramped. They're out and about living the free life.
3: They're out and about. In fact, one of the uh, folks think, well, your turkeys are eating grass, so you don't have to feed them as much grain. But we actually use our rate of gain is it takes about four pounds of feed to get a pound of of turkey. Whereas our uh, counterparts who raise them in confinement, you know, the the large commercial farms only use two pounds of feed to get a pound of turkey. That's because our birds are running
1: around, getting a lot of exercise, burning off a lot of calories. So it takes a lot more feed to, to grow them. 4,000 turkeys. That's got to be a ton of feed. I'm reading here, you guys, when you first started doing this, you raised 15 turkeys for family and friends, and then now it's 4,000. That is quite an undertaking to go from a small amount to a large amount like, like that. It seems rather quickly, too.
3: Yeah, it's been over about a 10 or 12 year period that we grew that much. We've been at this level for a couple of years now, but uh, the big time, the big workload is coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, process them all right on our farm, so we've got an, an incredible amount of work ahead of us here in the next
1: few weeks. Yeah, I'm guessing this is your busy season. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this is the busy season. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> Start from the beginning. How did you become a turkey farmer? Was this something that your family did? Did you wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to be a turkey farmer? Well,
3: it's funny. It goes all the way back to when I was a kid. I grew up in suburban Connecticut. My mom was a mail lady. My dad was an industrial engineer for UniRoil. We had no farming in our background. But as a kid, I had a dream of being a farmer, and I went to uh, VOAG High School in Woodbury, Connecticut, was a member of the FFA, and uh, had an interest in poultry back then as a, as a kid. And I actually uh, won the poultry judging contest with state of Connecticut, which sent me to the nationals. All right. So I started way back then. FFA, I give a plug to them. They are an outstanding organization, teach leadership skills, public speaking skills. The young people. Uh, uh, last I knew they were the largest youth organization in the world. I was fortunate enough to go through the FFA and that really, uh, kindled my, my passion for being in, in agriculture and, and, and getting into poultry. Eventually we started out though, my wife and I and my brother, we rented a dairy farm in Middlebury. We milked a couple hundred cows and over time we transitioned to turkeys, not because we didn't like being dairy farmers, but because we wanted to get into retail and the, uh, thought of trying to bottle milk and put up a bottling plant was daunting. And we had this passion for turkeys. And that's when we were raising a handful and people were asking us. So we just started raising more and more turkeys. And then we got out of the dairy business and, and we're doing
1: the turkeys full time. Tell us a little bit about the day in the life of a turkey farmer. It varies a lot. I
3: mean, uh, early on, we're tending to the babies in the in the brooder house. And then when they're moved out onto pasture, the, the workload changes quite a bit. We're filling large feeders. There is no typical day. Uh, and it's one of the things I love about raising turkeys as opposed to being a dairy farmer. When I was a dairy farmer, I get up every day at 4 a.m., milk the cows, fed the calves, fed the cows, cleaned the barn, then did it all over again at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and did it all again at 4 a.m. the next morning. Whereas as a turkey farmer, some days I spend fixing fence, building fence for the turkeys. We feed them now when they're, when they're this old. We have these feeders that hold three days' worth of feeds. We have to tend to them, add bedding to the barn, check on them, clean the waterers, things like that. But it's not as routine as life was as a dairy farmer. It's a little more unique every day.
1: I gotta imagine that turkeys are just ornery animal. That's the best way I would say. Growing up, my mom would say something is ornery. if it was, you know, had a little attitude, had a little. If it was hard to get along with, I gotta imagine turkeys are a little ornery. They're loud. You know.
3: Well, turkeys. A lot of people who come to our, our farm think turkeys are stupid. That's the first question they ask. Aren't they a dumb animal? And uh, turkeys actually have incredible curiosity. Whenever we're working in the field in the pasture or in the barn, they all gather around. They're looking to see what we're doing. One time I was working on putting some waterers up and I had this, these little hooks that I was going to be using. And I had a dozen of them. I put them down on the uh, the shelf in the barn there. The turkeys came over and all 12 of the hooks got stolen by a turkey. And they were running around. (gasps) They were saving
4: themselves.
3: I was able to get them all back because uh, the one that had the, the hook, there were about 30 or 40 turkeys chasing that one, trying to steal it from them. And so there were a dozen turkeys running around the coop with a pack of turkeys running behind it, trying to steal the hook from it. So I was able to find all the culprits and get the hooks back because I needed them for what I was doing. But they will come and, and gather around you and crane their necks and look at you. And they will pick at your at your boots and and peck at you just out of curiosity. They're very curious, very social birds. Um, I wouldn't call them ornery. I wouldn't call them ornery. They're, they're just very curious. They'll get in the way if you're trying to work in the pasture or in the farm because they gather around, get under underfoot. You can hardly walk. Curiosity gets them in trouble. They say curiosity killed the cat. I would say more so curiosity killed the turkey because uh, they will go to something that's causing a danger to them just because you're curious. They want to check it out.
2: Right. I can't blame them. So you set up that scene. Have you ever, have you or your family ever gotten attached to your turkeys? Because see, I love meat, protein, things that were once alive. It pains me to think about them having a personality because, you know, I'm going to devour it. So. Do you have relationships with these turkeys? How do you delineate between being the farmer and being a businessman?
3: Well, my daughter, who is now our marketing manager, and she's uh, very involved with the, with the turkey enterprise, when she was six or seven or eight years old, and we were only raising that 15 turkeys for Thanksgiving, she refused to come to the table one year because eating the turkeys that she had become friends with <laughs> as we were raising them. She's since outgrown that. We do have an affection for all the animals we raise. We enjoy working with them. We wouldn't be in this business if we didn't have an affection for the animals, the birds, and the the livestock. But we do have to realize that they're being raised for a purpose, that we give them a really good life. We process them on the farm, and we do it in a very humane way so that uh, the birds don't experience any stress. Being on a farm and growing up on a farm, our children have all learned that, and um, it's just the way it is.
2: Have you ever been encouraged by any of your children or your family members to pardon a turkey <laughs> every year?
3: Last November, the lieutenant governor came out and pardoned a turkey at our farm.
1: I picture him having like a whole, whole court set up for him. Where, <laughs> and oh my this goodness. Turkey. <laughs> so yeah, we
3: literally have had turkeys pardoned.
1: Now, Rick, did you file an appeal after that? Did you file an appeal?
3: <laughs> <laughs> and my daughter, when she was younger, she used to pardon turkeys. She would... Move a bird into a pen and put a sign on it. <laughs> this is Katie's turkey. Do not touch it. <laughs> uh, and she was, uh, she's a young lady you don't argue with. So and we had one for uh, 14 years, one turkey that she had pardoned.
4: Wow.
3: She took it, took it into the Children's Museum in Hartford one time, put it on display, strutted and did quite a nice show for the kids who came through just to learn about. That was one of her FFA projects when she was in Future Farmers of America.
1: What's life on Econk Hill Turkey Farm? What's life for a turkey like on the farm? Well, they start out in uh, April through July in our brooder house, which is a uh, a
3: brooder that keeps the temperature at about uh, 95 to 100 degrees. And we gradually lower the temp as they grow. And then by the the time they're four or five weeks old, uh, it's summer weather that time of year when, when we're starting our turkeys. So by five weeks of age, uh, usually, unless the weather is not cooperating, but usually it does, they get moved out into our, our main growing barn, which is where the, the pasture is. So they'll stay in there for a couple of weeks, then they'll get turned out into to access the pasture when they're about six to seven weeks old. And after that, they just eat and uh, forage. Uh, they have grain available to them full-time in cedars in the barn and water is available full-time, obviously, in the barn. And then they have uh, pasture uh, that they can forage on, eat grass, uh, eat bugs, uh, find things to run around. And they're just curious, playful animals. They'll constantly be finding something and then have a group of birds chasing after them, trying to figure out what it is they have. And and it may just be a twig or a leaf or something, but uh, they, they really do enjoy foraging. By nature, they love to forage and look for things to eat. And uh, they seem to get a lot of enjoyment out of foraging.
2: That is fascinating to me. You know, here in the state of Connecticut, we hear stories of dairy farms. I've recently learned that there are some cows that live a better life than I do. Uh, they're sleeping on tempur It's a whole situation. Are your turkeys living the good life? Are you like feeding them chocolate bonbons? Oh, I would what definitely
3: they say they're living the good life, primarily because they have access to the outdoors. They get, you know, full access to feed, as I mentioned, in the barn, in the coop where they can eat whenever they want to. But uh, they also have the opportunity to forage and roam around, and uh, that's what they, by nature, enjoy doing. So, yes, I'd say they're living the good life.
1: Let's get down to turkey tax here. Let's talk about farm-fresh turkeys in the cooking process versus getting, you know, something people might buy from the supermarket. What are some tips you would give people to cook fresh farm-raised turkey as opposed to, you know, the frozen store-bought ones?
3: Well, one of the differences of a fresh turkey is they cook much faster. And folks who've never cooked a fresh turkey don't realize that they, uh, the moisture level of the meat is so much higher than a, uh, a bird that's been frozen that uh, that they, uh, they they just the meat the heat transfers through the meat much more quickly and they cook much much faster. Typical uh, recommendation is 15 to 20 minutes a pound for a frozen bird. Ours will cook in 12 minutes a pound, typically. Of course, we always recommend the meat thermometer to uh, to, to uh, measure when they're done. Uh, but, uh, because ovens all tend to vary, but at 325, 12 minutes a pound, and they're usually done. Uh, even folks who get the huge birds from us, the 35 to 40 pounders, uh, they're amazed at how quickly they cook. They think, oh my God, I'm going to cook these for a day and a half, but, uh, it's not so with a fresh turkey. They cook faster. And so the biggest mistake folks make is they overcook them. Yeah, I agree. If it's the first time doing a fresh bird.
2: Do the people who come get turkeys from you, do they pick out their turkey? Do they, how, how
3: does this work? <laughs> we did have a. Uh,
2: Cause I don't want to get too, atta- I don't want to get too attached.
3: <laughs> well, you know, the, the choose and cut Christmas tree. We had a, uh, a, a grandmother show up with her grandchildren. One, this was a few years ago and wanted to tag her turkey. This was in <laughs> October, well before Thanksgiving. She wanted to go out with the kids and pick a turkey and put their name on it. So that uh, Thanksgiving, that would be the turkey they were having. I explained to her that that wouldn't be possible, I, uh, not in front of the kids, but I just told her, well, we can't really crack no. that turkey <laughs> to you later. Uh, but uh, you can come out and pick out a turkey and then uh, come back and get a turkey at Thanksgiving. The kids enjoyed it. I, I was a little bizarre request, a little different, but uh, we, accommodate, we accommodated her. She uh, took the kids out to the pasture <laughs> and they picked out a turkey and said, well, that's going to be our dinner for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and then they came and got a turkey at Thanksgiving. But no, the normal process is folks just either call or email or visit the farm. They state what size they'd like, and we come as close as possible to the size they they ask for. That's actually the biggest stress for us at Thanksgiving is hitting the right size. As a small farm, we only have a limited number of turkeys, and we have customers for almost all of the turkeys, so we need to match the customer and the size. And we don't have an inventory list ahead of time saying we have, this many 15 pounders, this many 18 pounders, and so forth, we have to kind of guess because they're still running around the pasture growing. And so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an art to getting those birds uh, and those customers match perfectly. Some years we nail it. Some years it gets skewed and, and we have to uh, adjust accordingly, but.
1: And you never know when you promise the 22 pound Tom, the last one to somebody and the Lieutenant governor shows up and pardons them. And then what are you going to do then? (laughs) (laughs) That art Rick described of the farmer trying to time out the weight of the turkeys to match the desires of families who will be buying and eating them. It made us wonder how Rick was planning for this Thanksgiving when many people will be cooking for their immediate family of four or five instead of eight or 10 or 20. We wondered, were people requesting much smaller birds this year than in previous years?
3: Yeah, we're already seeing that. We've got a lot of orders right now. The phone rings off the hook. People calling to place orders, and uh, we enter them into a spreadsheet so that when they come and pick up, we have an organized system for tracking it. And so we're able to look at what our orders are. And so far, they're running about three pounds below average, the average size, which makes me a little nervous because the turkeys are going to grow the way the turkeys grow, and uh, and they're going to be what they are. We can't control that. So if we get a lot of smaller orders, we may run out of smaller birds.
2: This just reminded me, you know, my, when my children were younger, we had to stop in the middle of traffic because there was a flock. Is it a flock of turkeys? A flock, yep. A flock of turkeys crossing the street. And I was, you know, honking my horn. I'm like, I got to get to point B. And, you know, my son <laughs> is like, let them cross. That might be our Thanksgiving dinner. And I was like, no, those are wild turkeys. <laughs> So can you delineate between wild turkeys that I see crossing the street, that I see co- frequently, uh, versus the turkeys you have on your farm? I did not break my son's heart, right? It's not like I could have gotten that turkey and, you know, that turkey would have been our, our Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> correct?
3: Well, uh, wild, we, we do raise heritage turkeys on our farm as well as the traditional broad-breasted white. And the heritage turkey is much more like a wild turkey. So we do sell some that are, are very similar to a wild turkey, which means they have, very little breast meat, not a lot of white meat. They're mostly dark meat. Uh, they're not quite as juicy and tender, but they're more flavorful. And some folks really, really like them. We charge $12 a pound for our heritage and we've been sold out for over a month already on those.
2: Already? Wow.
3: So uh, they're a niche item. They're kind of like the heirloom tomato of the turkey world. And they're very similar to a wild turkey that you saw crossing the road. Um, but, uh, but most folks like, the whites better because they're juicier they're more tender lots of white meat most people like the white meat better Uh, and that's why the broad-breasted white turkey is raised for consumers because it it meets what their what their expectation is
1: i gotta be honest i'm a chef i like those niche items i just got very excited i was like oh my gosh i can get a heritage bird from this guy this is amazing i was getting very excited and then rick you know what you did you took my legs out from underneath me and said, nope, we're sold out.
2: Oh, yeah, that part.
1: <laughs> Order in August.
2: Really?
3: <laughs> Order one in August and you'll get one. Otherwise, you're pretty well sold out.
1: That far ahead of time, huh? That's amazing. I'm, I'm glad to know that now. Cause... People
3: start calling in August. and you, Well, usually, it's first or second week of September, we'll be sold out of uh, Heritage.
2: Rick, are you uh, dark meat or uh, white meat?
3: I prefer dark meat. Me too. But oddly enough, I like the dark meat. I like the dark meat on a white bird, on the broad breast of white. It's so juicy, so melt-in-your-mouth tender. The heritage have a little less tenderness to them, so I'm not as fond of the dark meat on a heritage.
2: Well, Plum, since he's out of heritage, I'm just going to co-sign with, with him. He's, That's he's, it.
1: You're sp- doing that, huh? Yeah. Listen, i I got I gotta to <laughs> ask you, though, Rick. By the time Thanksgiving Day rolls around for you, are you so over turkey that you're like, you know what, we're having <laughs> steak tonight?
3: <laughs> no, we always have, we always have turkey. I I never get tired of eating it. So we do have turkey for Thanksgiving.
1: Rick, you're the best. We appreciate you. We hope you have a great Thanksgiving with your family and uh, a great season. And we look forward to talking to you on down the road. You too. Thank you. Have a great day.
2: That was Rick Hermanot, owner of Econ Kill Turkey Farm in Sterling, Connecticut. Later on in the hour, Alex Beggs, the etiquette columnist from Bon Appetit magazine, helps us decipher what's acceptable in this new normal.
1: And coming up after the break, a conversation with hometown hero Craig Wright, owner of Craig's Kitchen in Vernon.
0: You have to learn from your errors, you know? Try to make them better. Not just cooking, but life itself.
2: I'm Sil Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back after the break.
2: Welcome back, everybody. This is Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. You're about to meet a very special chef. Craig Wright owns Craig's Kitchen in Vernon. Craig's specialty is soul food. You'll find fried, barbecued, and smothered chicken on the menu, as well as ribs, catfish, collard greens, candied yams, mac and cheese, and red beans and rice. Soul food is comfort food. And since 2018, Craig has been bringing comfort food to the people of Vernon on Thanksgiving Day for free.
2: Craig's is a story of hardship, grit, determination, and giving back. We spoke with Craig earlier this month.
1: We asked what led him to Connecticut, the turns his life took once he got here, and how he learned to cook.
0: I was uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and I moved to Connecticut 2002, 2003. So I was around like 15 years old. My mother had passed away when I was young, so I spent a lot of years moving from family to family, and I ended up living with an aunt that took a shot and came out here to Connecticut.
1: I grew up down south, and at Craig's, you do soul food, which is one of the most delicious styles of food on the planet. But when I hear you're from Michigan, I get worried. You're making soul food in Michigan? (laughs) Where'd that come from?
0: (laughs) How is that even possible? Like, cause I'm—you gotta, you gotta understand—I'm from Detroit, and just the city of Detroit itself has like deep Southern roots from over the the 1900s. Uh, there was a, a big migration from families from the South up to the North, specifically like Detroit to work in, inside like the, the motor factories. So there's a, a deep Southern heritage in Detroit. So don't sleep on All my right. day, <laughs> no, Don't try to play me. Man. Don't, don't, don't try to disrespect. Me. No Come
1: disrespect on. intended. Just just I got I got to check, man. I got to check. I see Soul Food and, and, you know.
0: Motor City. Yeah, definitely Motor City representing. You should know firsthand. You got to try it. You just can't knock it. Don't, don't oh, knock listen, it till you uh, try it
1: hundred percent. And once you try good soul food, there's no coming back. That's for sure.
0: Well, I'll tell you, man. Let me tell you one thing about the good soul food. It took me years to to really develop into the chef that I am right now. Like, I'm sure you you know, trial and error is uh, huge.
1: huge. I'm still in the error part. I'm still.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> me too. You have to learn from your errors and try to make them better. Not just cooking, but life itself.
2: I was just going to say it's interesting that you say that because before we get into your your food backgrounds and your, your passion for food, you are no stranger to adversity. And I wonder if you can tell us about the times in your life that transformed you and motivated you to find and reach new levels in your life so that you could be where you are today.
0: When I had moved to Connecticut, I was a complete knucklehead. I dropped out of school and I wanted to party all the time just made completely wrong decisions, got sold drugs and got caught up. I was in and out of prison basically, from the age of 18 to 25, I was in and out of prison. If I wasn't in prison, I was on probation or parole or some kind of supervision. I was in prison for three years. And then the remaining six months, I I spent in a, a halfway house. But that three years in prison like changed my life. And it was really the most important and biggest thing that had happened to me because, that was the the switch that clicked that put everything into perspective. The things that I thought that were important really wasn't important, and I saw that. And the, the the people that were important, like my family and the friends that cared, those were the important ones because when I was at my lowest, they were the ones that wanted to support me and were there. So that that was one big thing. Like prison, it, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm tearing up and everything right now. Like,
1: oh man. Well, listen, that's. <laughs> That's one big thing. That's a massive big thing right there.
0: I tell you, man, like that that prison, that 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 swift kick in the butt was really what I needed. And like when I got that big time and I sat down for that three years, that's when I was like, all right, uh, we can't do this anymore because you got to break the cycle. And then so I went to that halfway house for that six months. And when I was there, I ended up getting a job in a, a kitchen, started washing dishes there and. Basically, from when I got out of the half a house up until I opened Craig's Kitchen, it was a period of like, what, four years. Whereas I worked, I, it was a time where I had four separate jobs all at once. I was a cook at a daycare. I was cooking at another restaurant. Like, I was all over the place. But, like, trying to save my money up just every day. Like, it's, it's a every, like, <laughs> I woke up and I wake up every day making the decision that I'm going to do better. And that's what you have to do. You got to do it every day. Every, every day I try to be better every day.
2: You were like a life coach before a life coach became a popular thing. It sounds like it.
0: (laughs) Cause I've really lived it. Like I've been rock bottom. Like I've literally slept in like, (laughs) like I have slept outside so many times. Like it's, it's, Yes, I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> Listen, it's okay. It's it's an amazing story, and it's very, very inspiring to everybody when I hear it. Honestly, to see what you've gone through and what you've accomplished, and we're going to talk about what you're doing now to help, is is amazing.
0: I'm so sorry. I'm getting emotional.
1: Emotion is good. These are the things that make you who you are, man.
2: They say when you are when you feel something in its totality, it's because it's your calling. So being in prison clearly wasn't your calling. Being a drug dealer clearly wasn't your calling. But doing the work that you're doing now. Is your calling? And I, I have a question. When you were in the halfway house and you became a dishwasher, how did you get that job? Did they just say, "Craig, this is your job"? Or is it? Or did you go into the want ads? How did you? Because that one decision really was like a turning point.
0: I found that job on Craigslist. Stop it. I, I, I it was <laughs> like, so. Basically, basically, when we were in the um, we were in the halfway house. We got like day passes to go search for jobs. So there were like job resource places because this was in Hartford. And I found a job on Craigslist, straight like that. I knew like it would be hard for me because I'm a felon. So that bars me from doing certain things. But getting into the kitchens and cooking and dishwashing, that, I knew that that would be easy for me to get into basically. But I tell you, when I was in prison and it just my, when my whole thought process was changing, I knew I wanted to own a business. So that's why I was like, okay, I'm going to get into the kitchen and I'm just going to put 110% into that. And that's what I did.
2: Had anyone taught you how to cook? Do you have memories growing up of a family member's cooking a specific dish or watching someone in your family
0: cook? I was the youngest of four boys. My mother raised all of us. Up until she passed away, I was like her helper. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Craig, I was looking at uh, the menu online for Craig's, and uh, I got a little excited about it. And if a man's gonna run a soul food restaurant, I got to ask him about his collard greens. Talk us through your collard greens,
0: man. Why you told you want my secrets, man? Come on, you, I can't give you all my secrets. Now, hey, he just want everything. (laughs) Okay, I definitely use smoked meat. Uh, That's about all I can give you.
1: (laughs) Okay, that works for me. I I definitely would use a little uh, smoked ham hock when I make mine as well.
0: But the thing is, I I use I, I gotta use the turkey meat because of a lot of people don't eat pork, so I gotta make everyone happy. There we go. I, I I prefer the pork personally, but...
1: That's what I'm you know. looking for.
2: Where did you get your recipes from?
0: Like I said, I, I grew up cooking with my mother. So a lot of the things I knew and I've always done, like, it's just natural to me. But going back to me saying trial and error, because a lot of the things, like, I taught myself. And I, I failed and I failed and I failed and I failed until uh, it got right.
2: Craig was inspired to serve free Thanksgiving dinners back in 2018. The restaurant had been robbed, and the community rallied around him, holding a Craig's Day to support the restaurant.
0: So they basically came, a lot of people came, ate at the restaurant, and at the same time, they had a little um, donation thing, whereas the donations were to go to my um, security system. I appreciated them coming to the restaurant, but I really didn't want like those donations because I just didn't really feel right taking the donations. So I ended up taking the donations and I gave it to the, the local vet house. But at the same time, um, like that that really meant a lot to me that they came together and did that for me. So I, was, I figured like I had to do something for the community since they did it, something for me, like which they really didn't have to do. So it was a few months from Thanksgiving and I was like, hey, why don't I just do this? Like, cause it's different. I've never, no one else has ever done this before. I'll just do a Thanksgiving dinner for the town. Like I'm just gonna do it every year as long as I'm open. Now,
1: that's amazing, man! What a fantastic story that for that to spawn from. Um, Mm -hmm. Has it grown? Like since the you know the first one you did, did you serve ten people? Then now you're serving fifty people. How much has it grown in the years it's been you've been doing it?
0: I tell you, it's it's definitely grown a lot, especially this year with COVID in our area. Like there's a lot of people without jobs, and this will definitely help a lot of people financially. It's a hard time right now. Unbelievably hard. So with that, it's I feel it's definitely bigger this time, and just because we we we're more recognized with it because we've done it and people know and they expect it, you know. So it's definitely more of a big deal this time around.
1: What are some of the things on the menu this year?
0: Uh, this year we got, uh, start with the turkey. We're gonna have uh, baked turkey and then we're gonna have jerk turkey, and then we're gonna have fried chicken, and then we're gonna have some ham as well, some uh, like honey glazed ham. And then we're gonna have mac and cheese, some collard greens, some green beans, candy yams, some uh, some dressing. I don't know if you call it stuffing. We call it dressing where I'm from. <laughs> I don't know about
2: you. I call it dressing too. I call it dressing also, and my family thinks I'm crazy.
0: Uh, we, well, I'm from, we call it dressing. Okay, so we have some of that. Little rice, some red beans and rice, and on top of that. We have so many volunteers and so many people donating dishes and desserts. Like it's going to be amazing.
1: I know the town is very lucky to have you, and we're lucky to have you here in Connecticut, and to be able to do these type of things to give back. I mean, it's just—it's got to be just the feeling for you has got to be incredible.
0: I mean, yeah, just, just because, like I said, it's been a long road. Mm-hmm. It's been a very long road, and I'm 33 years old. Like I have my whole life ahead of You're me.
1: Just getting started.
0: That's it. Like yeah, it just started.
1: How about a couple of shout-outs to some volunteers or people that help you or shout-out some people who are donating?
0: I'll give a whole shout-out to the town of Rockville, Vernon. Vernon, shout-out because I love them. I love the whole Tallinn <laughs> County. I love the whole, Connecticut. the whole Connecticut. Connecticut.
1: He loves the, the whole Connecticut.
0: Connecticut. <laughs> the whole Connecticut. Yeah, everyone. Wow. Thank you.
1: Craig, you're amazing. You guys, if you haven't done so, check out Craig's. It's a fantastic soul food restaurant. But just don't ask him how he makes his collars. He doesn't want to tell you that.
0: Don't ask. I try to get nobody, none of my secrets. So please don't ask. Hey,
1: hey, I got the turkey out of you. I got something out of you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, Craig, we appreciate your time, man. Thank you so, so much.
0: Hey, I I appreciate you guys. Thank you.
1: Happy Thanksgiving, brother. You too. That was Craig Wright, owner of Craig's Kitchen in Vernon. To say this is a tough time for small local restaurants like Craig's is an understatement. It's more important than ever that we support our neighborhood shops and cooks like Craig so they can continue feeding their communities and giving back in the best ways they know how. We're rooting for you, Craig. Have you heard an inspiring story about someone doing something amazing with food in your community? Share it with us. Send an email to seasoned at ctpublic.org.
2: After the break, etiquette columnist Alex Beggs talks with us about celebrating the holidays over Zoom and all the things you can do instead
4: of attending a large gathering this year. You could light a pumpkin spice candle and summon your ancestors. I've once spent a Thanksgiving watching all of the Friends Thanksgiving episodes. It was time really well spent. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to the Thanksgiving episode of Seasoned. We'll be right back after the break.
2: back to season. i Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
2: I think we can all agree this is likely the wonkiest holiday season <laughs> most of us will ever experience. And we could use some help navigating it all.
1: Alex Beggs is a senior staff writer at Bon Appetit magazine. She writes a column called Is It Ever Okay? where she answers readers burning questions about bad manners and more. Y- you'll hear me throw out some scenarios to her.
2: Alex Beggs, it is such a privilege and an honor to finally see your face after reading your column for all these months. Thank you for doing this with us.
4: Thank you for having me. This is
2: not the Emily Post etiquette column that our forefathers and foremothers grew up with. This is the very witty, charming answer to what is appropriate when dining out, dining in, cooking, going places. I, to this day, use, with my friend Stephanie Webster, girl, you got one minute to take a picture of that pie because I don't have time to wait,
4: (laughs) which I got from you. Yeah, the clock is definitely on.
2: Yes. So how did you come up with this idea to do etiquette? Is it ever okay to dot, dot, dot when it comes to the culinary world?
4: Well, I love reading etiquette columns. And to me, it's just purely for entertainment. And something I tell people a lot is like etiquette columns have existed for so long and people only seem to be behaving worse. So they're not working. So I get kind of the freedom to have a little fun with it. To me, it seems like well, nobody's listening to me anyway, so uh, I kind of say whatever pops into my head and I usually am in a pretty weird mindset.
1: Yeah, me too. I do the same thing. I just say whatever is in my <laughs> brain, which is part of the reason why I didn't do very well in etiquette in culinary school, which is ironic because at culinary school, it's, I, I graduated from the Culinary Institute of America and there is a lot of etiquette taught in your classes at school, which you know, I didn't realize until after the fact. And it's amazing how I guess people talking about formal dining and things like that—that's where this etiquette is taught.
4: Well, the rules are so outdated when it comes to dining too. Everything's so stuffy, and it definitely feels there are no rules anymore. So maybe we can just make them up.
1: So basically, you're saying if someone serves me a dish as a chef for 25 years, if I don't like it, it is okay for me to throw it at them.
4: See, now I'm I'm wondering if maybe that's not okay. <laughs> 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 well done. I think when it comes to violence, maybe maybe not.
2: I started this by saying that I'm a huge fan of yours in in part because you have such a specific voice whereby you answer these questions with just enough snark to make people laugh, but then also take <laughs> a step back and say you know what, maybe I shouldn't talk about politics at the dining room table. So where does that come from? Where do you get that balance of understanding the nuances of how we eat and what we eat and being in these social settings, but at the same time infuse it with this really sharp humor, I think, that disarms people?
4: (laughs) I think I'm... maybe a bad thing in, in some circumstances, but I'm, I'm pretty non confrontational. I think that's at the core of all my answers. So I'm not going to be the one who throws the dish in your face. <laughs> maybe there's a time and a place for being confrontational, like, you know, if you're talking to Congress or something, but, <laughs> you know, a lot of times like with your uncles, it's like, you're only going to get so far. So, so I think that's where I'm coming from. Uh, I also have good editors and <laughs> keep me from going overboard. I think sometimes I scale it back. You guys don't see that version of them, which is probably for the best.
1: Well, I have lots of questions. So Alex, um, if someone serves me a plate of food with what we call a non-functional garnish, that sprig of rosemary that on the plate mm, for no reason. I love that. that. piece of time that I'm going to put a kale leaf for no reason on yes. your plate. Is it okay then to throw that plate on the floor?
4: Is it glass plate or like melamine?
1: No, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's probably a paper plate.
4: And I guess you could throw that on the floor. I wouldn't want to break glass.
1: Marisol, I'm checking that one. That's an okay. So that's good.
4: I love a non-functional garnish. I love you, Alex.
1: No, I no. Stop <laughs> love you. perpetuating it's not hard the problem. Hard. I think no.
4: it's sort of, sort of postmodern. It's like this is food that you don't eat on the food that you do eat. But it's like blows your mind. <laughs> I like that. So I'm looking at your your latest
2: column, Is It Ever Okay to Skip Thanksgiving Altogether? That's the title. Advice for Thanksgiving Gatherings Small and Very Small from Alex Beggs. One of them says, and I'm glad someone asked this, we need an answer once and for all. What time should Thanksgiving meal be served? Love horological how? So tell our listeners what you you came up with, but then I have a a follow-up question.
4: (laughs) You should serve Thanksgiving at dinner time. I agree. It is dinner. It is not lunch. And it's definitely not whatever meal exists at 3 (laughs) p.m., which I'm pretty sure is tea time. And Thanksgiving (laughs) is not tea time. But that said, you can kind of do whatever you want this year because hopefully you're staying home. You can be free. You can eat whenever your stomach desires. Order takeout. My Aunt Mary, um, shout out to Aunt Mary, is making fried chicken. I think... As long as you're making it a Thanksgiving to remember and not because you infected your entire extended family. My, and I agree.
2: My sister wants to have Thanksgiving at like <laughs> 3 o'clock. And I'm like, no, pretty sure that's it's dinner. way too it's early. Too early. Um, these questions that are so fantastic that appear in your column are always, you give them, I don't know if it's you giving the moniker, and that's my question. So this, this question was from Horological Hell. There's Jumble Jojo, Mystified Madison. Who is coming up with these monikers?
4: I have a Google Doc that that is all the names that I didn't, I make sure I don't repeat any. Um, but I, uh, I get a lot of questions on Instagram. So I try and use people's real names. Uh, if it's a name we've already run, or I can't think of an adjective, oh, I almost always can. I'll, I'll make up a name for them. But I, I would say almost like 80% of the time, the name is someone's real name. And the adjective is me searching thesaurus.com. Uh,
2: you're an English teacher's dream. I just want to put that out there.
1: <laughs> it, It's impressive. It's really, really impressive. All right, Alex, I got just another question really quick. Mm-hmm. Let's say someone serves me a shrimp dish.
4: Are we talking on Thanksgiving? Sure. I love shrimp cocktail on Thanksgiving.
1: <laughs> me too. But they want me to eat it with a fork, right? So it's a shrimp dish with the tails on it. To me, those tails count as now functional garnish. It's going on the floor.
4: I'm sensing a theme here, and I want to let you do you. <laughs> so,
1: well, uh, see,
4: it sounds like you've got to work some stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like a little shrimp tail? Sometimes they get nice and crispy.
1: Not with a fork.
4: They're edible.
1: I'm just trying to learn and take notes here. Sorry, mind you, I, I apologize.
4: came <laughs> it, right. to the wrong source.
1: <laughs> I have a checklist. That's all.
2: Alex, I know um, this might have been last year, the etiquette was, if you didn't cook the meal, you at least have to do something like wash Mm. the dishes, you know, never ask the host, what can I bring? So as the host, whether you're doing it via Zoom or just for your immediate family, is it okay to say, yes, Titi Jenny, you have an Aunt Mary, I have a Titi Jenny, you can bring a Cabernet, but it needs to be this Cabernet, this specific thing. Or is that so rude?
4: I've asked people to bring Bounty SelectaSize paper dowels, and I was very specific about the SelectaSize. <laughs> I like that one a lot. I don't know. I can't speak for all of humanity, but I, I find it productive to to give them that specific. I think with wine, it's a little harder because you know every wine store is a little different from the next. I do have a kind of charmingly controlling friend who will give her local wine store, the list of wines for guests to come and pick up so they can just walk in and be like, I'm going to so-and-so's house. What are the wines? I thought that was a good idea. You make a registry at your wine store. You can do that. This is amazing.
1: Thanksgiving registry. I love it for any event.
4: (laughs) And it's just all wine. So yeah, give them the specific instructions. I think within the realm of possibility, I think bounty selecticize is definitely a reasonable ask. A lot
2: of people are opting for the Zoom Thanksgiving this year, but I have a very big extended family. So I had to ask Alex, is it ever okay to opt out of the Zoom Thanksgiving?
4: No one wants to do a Zoom Thanksgiving. It's just torture. Zoom is for conference calls and holidays are not conference calls. I think, you know, you need to check in with your family however you do that. I'm still kind of a phone family, so I'm sure I'll call my dad and my siblings and my great aunt and say, like, hi, what you cooking? Happy Thanksgiving, love you! Bye. But like a thirty-minute to several hour-long Zoom Thanksgiving is not going to be fun for anyone. The technical difficulties, yelling over over each other is just chaos. It is oh oh nightmare. Don't do it. Yeah.
2: You do offer some alternatives. Go for a long and lonely hike with a thermos of soup and your thoughts. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> I will take that over. Avoiding talking about the election with my family that disagrees with me any day of the week.
4: Yeah, I mean, hopefully you're celebrating Thanksgiving with your household and and not joining with others indoors. It's just like a terrible idea. And then there's so many other things you can do. You can go for a long and lonely walk. I think I wrote that you could light a pumpkin spice candle and summon your ancestors. I've once spent a Thanksgiving watching all of the friends thanksgiving episodes so it was time really well spent i think the john oh wick God. movies are also appropriate for any holiday that would be a, a good great. way to spend your time mm-hmm. sell some old furniture on facebook marketplace find something that you <laughs> thought was lost get into quilting there's so much you could do
1: we could start a zoom friendship bracelet club
4: <laughs> zoom anything i don't want to do okay.
1: well, what's the plan for at your house for thanksgiving what are you what, how are you guys changing and what's going to be different for you
4: well, we'd had to tell uh, my in-laws that no, we're, we didn't feel comfortable enough to come over. It just felt too risky. So so that's kind of a hard conversation to have. But ultimately, as long as your family understands that this is a highly infectious global pandemic, they're they're understanding. So if they don't, then maybe your problems are bigger than I'm capable of solving. So we're staying in and I'm not sure what I'm going to cook yet. I think in the column I wrote, I'm boiling lobsters and I've done that before. It's kind of extravagant. Anything other than turkey, you know, I like maybe duck, duck confit could be cool feeling. Fancy, <laughs> festive. I think a roast chicken. Well,
1: those all sound great. That's awesome. I can't wait to see it on Zoom with you.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Ugh.
1: just kidding. Just kidding. Alex isn't coming to my Zoom Thanksgiving. I did invite her though. Uh, she politely declined.
2: That was Alex Beggs. She writes the Is It Ever Okay? column in Bon Appetit magazine.
1: Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyon-Aiken and Katie Talarski. All of us at the show wish you a memorable, happy Thanksgiving. Whether you Zoom or not, <laughs> I'm Chef Plum.
2: And I'm Marisol Castro. Thanks so much for listening.